Good morning, everyone. Tom is going to be teaching, continuing his series in 2 Corinthians, and we're, the scripture reading for this morning is chapter 12, verses 11 through 21. Let me give you two sentences, maybe three, of a uh, little context. Paul's, as Tom has taught us, Paul's authority has been challenged by false apostles and false teachers that have come to Corinth. And one of the criticism was that Paul acts foolish. And in order to understand what we're getting ready to read, you need to understand that he's been attacked and he's been, act, he's been accused of being foolish. And Paul uses that in an argument and Tom will explain more about it. So here we go. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even, then, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me for this wrong. Here for this third time I am ready to come to you and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents save up for their children. And I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you the more, am I to be loved the less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? All this time you've been thinking that we were defending ourselves to you. But actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, dearly beloved. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there may be strife, jealousy, anger, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We praise you for how you work down through history, through men and women, children, promoting your gospel, how you use the Apostle Paul to append these great words for our edification. Bless Tom as he teaches, and may we all be edified and grow accordingly. And we pray, Lord, in your name for your glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. I suspect that everybody here has heard the adage, no good deed goes unpunished. 
And, and I suspect that most of us, at some point in our, in our lives, have had experiences that seem to bear that adage out. If you've ever been tempted to see life through that cynical lens, uh, Paul and his employer have something very encouraging to share with you through this passage this morning. Uh, this is, I, I, when I came to this passage, I, I had a little bit of, of fear that it would be sort of anticlimactic after the couple of amazing passages before it. But f- for me, this has been a great week, just realizing what, what the point and the, the essence of, uh, of that which Paul is teaching here is. It's, uh, it's very powerful. Once again, Paul opens by pointing out that, uh, that the things that uh, he has been saying in his defense, uh, in defense of his ministry and his integrity, should not have been needed, and they were not what he would have preferred to be writing to these saints. He has repeatedly declared all talk about men and all credit, any kind of credit given to men, uh, to be foolishness because it so easily turns the focus of men uh, to men instead of to Christ. But here again, Paul points out that his foolish talk about himself has been necessary because of how readily, as John just explained, how readily some of the Corinthian saints were receiving accusations that were being made against Paul by those false apostles who were trying to... Uh, to put themselves in the place of apostolic authority. They were trying to unseat Paul. Paul says, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you. For in no respect was I inferior to the, to the fake apostles, is really what he's saying here, even though I am a nobody. These saints in Corinth, they owed their right standing before God and their eternal salvation to the work that God had miraculously done in their midst and in their souls through this man, Paul. In chapter 3, Paul said, are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? And then he said, you are our letter, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And Paul is saying that the, the greatest demonstration, uh, the greatest uh, commendation that he could ever receive God had produced in the hearts of human beings, of of the Corinthian saints. They already had been given abundant and compelling evidence that Paul bore God's apostolic approval in a way that these pretend apostles absolutely did not. One soul at a time, the Holy Spirit had done a mighty work through Paul in this first century sin city known as Corinth. When Paul adds, though I am a nobody at the end of verse 11, he is not being disingenuous in any way. He is, uh, this is not false humility. Paul's confidence had never been in himself or in anything that came from himself. Back in chapter 3, he said, 
such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. The only way that you and I will ever rightly value the power of God working in and through us is if we first rightly assess what we bring to the table for God to work with. And the answer to that question is that we bring absolutely nothing. We bring nothing. God has to produce all of it. All we are is sinners and enemies and rebels dead in our sins when he saves us makes us alive so Paul's boasting had never actually been about himself even when he spoke of his of things related to his ministry and especially to his sufferings his boasting had not really been about himself but for the sake of these saints whose well-being mattered more to Paul than his own uh, he could not stand by while they exalted and heeded the words of men who really knew nothing of Christ. So Paul boasted in in a manner that only the godliest conscience would actually call boasting. If the transformation in their own hearts and in their own lives was not enough to commend Paul to them, Paul had also had the visible testimony of the Holy Spirit in the form of the many miracles that God had performed through Paul and through his co-workers. He says in verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. The, The with all perseverance part is very important. Go back and read chapter 11. That litany of things, of of things that Paul had suffered for the sake of Christ and for the sake of these who were beloved of the Lord. Uh, He had borne very, very much. And he had persisted. He had stayed the course over, over what is now decades. And God had used him mightily. The book of Acts records just a sampling of the miraculous signs and wonders that God accomplished through Paul to attest to his message and to his messenger, just as God has always done for his true prophets and apostles. Talked about that some last week. Um, In verses 13 to 18, Paul zeroes in on one particular accusation that the false apostles had been making against him and his fellow workers. While Paul never provides a comprehensive list of the, of the accusations that his detractors had raised against him, it should be abundantly clear by this point that one of those claims was that Paul had been fleecing the flock of God for his own personal gain. That he could not be entrusted with the church's money. Paul has already said all that he can to affirm his and his co-workers above reproach handling of money. Uh, They were accusing him, either subtly or blatantly, of using money donated by the saints to line his own pockets. And this was especially damaging in light of, of Paul's present work, what he calls God's gracious work, to gather gifts from all of the churches to take to the impoverished and heavily persecuted saints in the city of Jerusalem. 
It wasn't just Paul who was being harmed by these false accusations. It was countless other believers who desperately needed the money that God was providing through His gracious work. And that's why Paul, who who cared not at all about the approval of men, was nonetheless compelled to deal with this accusation head on. And that's what he does here. In verses 13 to 16, he lays out the case for his financial integrity even more forcefully than he has already done. He says, For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. That's what you call sarcasm. Here, for this third time, I am ready to come to you and I will not be a burden to you for I do not seek what is yours, but you. I don't seek what you can give to me. What I seek is you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And I will most gladly Spend and be expended for your souls. That's, that is just a marvelous statement. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you, the more am I to be loved, the less? Be that as it may. I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. It is a great irony and uh, and a greater hypocrisy that the same false prophets who were working so hard to marginalize Paul were the very ones who were actually taking financial advantage of these saints. One of the red flags that has always marked out false teachers is that they consume the flock that they are supposed to shepherd. And that's been the case ever since Israel existed as a people. Ever since God had a covenant people. Listen as I read just a, a few excerpts from the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, especially from chapter 34. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Instead of feeding the flock, they're eating the flock. And he says, those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and severity, you have dominated them. This pattern of false teachers feeding on the flock instead of feeding the flock of God was just as apparent in Paul's day as in Ezekiel's day. Here in chapter 11, verses 19 to 20, Paul says, For you being so wise, bear with the foolish gladly. For you bear with anyone if he enslaves you, if he devours you, if he takes advantage of you if he exalts himself, even if he hits you in the face. This sounds very much like what Ezekiel was describing. A lot of time has elapsed. And false shepherds are still as they've always been. And that same pattern is just as apparent today. 
It's hard to imagine how many good things could have been done with the money given by professing Christians to buy Learjets for televangelists. But, but praise God that the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills uh, is not in any way constrained by the selfishness or foolishness of men. All that the Corinthian believers had to do to know that Paul was not like these false shepherds was to listen to Paul's words and to pay attention to his actions that always matched up with his words. In chapter 12, here in chapter 12, verse 14, Paul says, I do not seek what is yours, but you. This is beautiful. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Now, that last part is a point that some parents would do well to consider. I've known some believing parents who seem far more focused on what they should receive from their children than in what they have been commissioned by God to give to their children. But the reason Paul presents this truism about parents and children is to point out that all that he has done has been for the well-being of the Corinthian saints. It has not been done to take from them, from them, but to give to them. And above all else, to build them up in their relationship with and their submission to Christ. And Paul understood full well that, uh, that building up the spiritual children that God had given to him demanded that he must both spend and be spent for their souls. He must both spend and be spent for their souls. And that's, that became my title for this message. Spending and being spent for the church, for the people of God. In verse 15, Paul said that this expending, uh, regarding this expending of self, he said, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And the word for spend has the connotation of using up, uh, as in spending until there's nothing else left in the account. In the same way, the related passive verb here, be spent, has the connotation of exhausting the supply, uh, of being exhausted of resources. We are so prone to agonize over the possibility, beloved, that God will somehow demand more from us than we are able to give. Have you ever struggled with that, that sense of things? That God is demanding more than you are able to give? Not just money in mind here, nor do I believe Paul does. Uh, not by a long shot. When we embrace the simple truth that what God demands of every single one of us for the sake of our Savior and of His church is everything, absolutely everything that He so freely gives to us, we find that agreement with God to be wonderfully liberating. It's when we think there's supposed to be a ceiling on what he, what he requires of us that we get frustrated. When we embrace the reality that what he requires of us is everything that he has given to us, it's actually liberating. And what makes it wonderful instead of daunting is that the one that we serve is the fountain of living waters. He is an overflowing flood of provision given without measure to His beloved. 
Paul talked about that in chapter 9. The one who commands us to give with no end in sight is the same one who gives to us with no end at all. Yesterday I realized that the perfect hymn for us to sing before this message was He Giveth More Grace. And I'm going to again read the second verse that we just sang. Listen carefully. This is gold, beloved. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. That's the One who requires all of us. is the One who gives with no limit. When we truly believe this glorious promise of God, it changes our entire approach to giving to others and to serving others. It doesn't mean that we never say no to anyone. You and I don't have the, the, the blessing of omnipresence, right? At least I don't. So if we say yes to every possible opportunity to serve others, we end up serving no one well. But the, but the truth that Paul so masterfully expresses in this great and, or that the writer of that hymn so masterfully expressed, and that Paul presents before us here, is it dispenses with any fear that God will demand more from us than He will supply. It's not going to happen. Do we believe this? Beloved, God will never demand more of you than He supplies. Never. Paul knew very well the exorbitant cost of loving the bride of Christ as Christ has loved us. But he knew even better the unfathomable riches of Christ that have been lavished upon us. Read Ephesians 1 through 3. That have been lavished upon, that had been lavished on Paul and that have been lavished on everyone who has ever believed in Jesus Christ. So Paul saw, saw no threat in that exorbitant cost. No threat at all. Do you see no threat in the exorbitant cost of loving the bride of Christ as Christ has loved you? In verse 16, Paul once again uses biting sarcasm to drive home the stark contrast between himself and these fake apostles. In verse 13, he said, In what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now in verse 16, he says, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Now I've actually talked to Christians who have, they just had great heartburn over this as if the, the Apostle Paul actually was deceiving the Corinthians. <laughs> That's not what's going on here, guys. He's not confessing deceit here any more than he was confessing robbery in 11.8 when he said, I robbed other churches taking wages from them to serve you. What he's doing is he, is he is repeating the accusations that are being made against him in order to, in order to point out how absurd they are. These saints actually know 
how Paul and his co-workers have conducted themselves in all of their interactions with, with the beloved of God. Here Paul makes sure to include his faithful co-workers in his defense of his own integrity. He says, certainly, I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. This is the same unnamed brother that he speaks of in chapter 8. He says, Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? In other words, the people that I sent to you, they did the same thing I did. They've loved you just as I have loved you. They have spent and they have been spent for your souls. Verse 19 begins with a statement that that grabs our attention just as surely as it did the attention of the Corinthian saints. Having said much throughout this letter to defend the integrity and effectiveness of his ministry, Paul now presents a very, very important clarification. He says, all this time you've been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. All this time you've been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved, for your edification. Now you might be thinking, how can Paul say that he hasn't been defending himself to the Corinthians when that's exactly what he's been doing over and over and over? Well, Paul is very precise in his choice of words here. He says the defense that he and his co-workers have presented repeatedly in both of his letters to the Corinthians That defense has never been self-defense to men. Never. Instead, they have been speaking in the sight of God. They have been speaking in Christ. And they have been speaking for the upbuilding and edification of the Corinthian believers. In his commentary on this chapter, David Garland provides this explanation of Paul's meaning here. He says, Paul is not being disingenuous with this question. He wants to make it clear to the Corinthians that he is not the prisoner at the bar having to submit an embarrassing submit to an embarrassing cross-examination. He has committed no offense and he does not need to exonerate himself. Besides that, the Corinthians are not his judges. It is God, not they, that he must please. He is therefore speaking before God, not men. Now, they're hearing it. They're hearing it, but the one before whom he is declaring his defense is God, who already knows. Paul made the same essential point in 1 Corinthians 4 when he said to this same community of believers in the first part of that chapter, to me it is a very, very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now, while you and I don't have the benefit of speaking with apostolic authority under divine inspiration, Paul's example here is nonetheless indispensable to every one of us. 
This is the standard for every ambassador of Christ. In all that you and I say as servants of Jesus, even when we must respond to accusations made against us by others, we speak in the sight of God, the one to whom alone we will all give account. We speak in Christ as redeemed, forgiven, renewed agents of the living God already brought into union with our Master. And we speak to build up His church and never to tear it down. That last part provides the goal and the clearly fixed compass to guide all that we say. That was Paul's very strong focus in chapters 12 and 13 and 14, and that is that love for the brethren, the building up of the brethren, is to guide everything that we say and do outside of the worship and inside of, of the times that we gather for worship. To build up the church of God. A devoted servant of God's flock does not care about or pursue self-vindication. God's assignment to us to be above reproach in the eyes of men is only so that our reputation will not hinder the work that God is doing through us to display others to Christ. But our vindicator is God, not us. And we never have to worry about our own well-being. That's God's wheelhouse. Not ours. If you haven't figured that out, that is just bedrock for the, for the Christian life. You don't ever have to worry about your well-being. That's God's wheelhouse, not yours. All you have to do is trust the one who, who gave himself up to save you. Consider for just a moment how very different our interactions with many people would be if we all truly uh, laid our concern for our own personal well-being at the feet of the lover of our souls. Uh, that, that is worthy of more than uh, a, a fleeting consideration. That is worthy of, of long labor and prayer, brothers and sisters. Agreeing with God that our well-being is never at issue. And that, that acknowledgement to God needs to be renewed Daily. Because the world tells us exactly the opposite. In the last two verses of this very heartfelt passage, Paul concludes by expressing two fears that he carries in his heart for the community of the saints whom he loves with the tender love of a father for his children. He says, For I am afraid that perhaps when I come I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you not to be what you wish. That perhaps there may be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. He doesn't put an and in there and I think that's because he's not really finished with the list. He says, I am afraid that when I come again my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. When I read those last two verses, I can't help but feel, at least in some small measure, 
the weight of what Paul in the previous chapter called his intense concern. That word, literal translation of the Greek word is there, his burning. Whenever any member of Christ's body is led into sin. Paul knows that there are still some in Corinth who are entertaining the deceptions and lies of the false prophets who are doing everything in their power to turn the church against Paul and thus against Christ who, who appointed Paul to his apostolic role. Paul has already beheld the rotten fruit of those lies in the form of chronic divisions in the church and many, many different kinds of sins. If you'll notice, all of the sins that he lists in verse 20, all of the sins that he lists in verse 20 are the sins that destroy relationships. Look at the list. Strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Paul's heart burns with concern for the beloved of God. Loving the bride of Christ, brothers and sisters, will bring you into the same kinds of challenges that Paul faced right here. Your qualifications, your fitness to represent Christ and your effectiveness in doing so will be called into question by some if you're really doing this right. You will have the painful task of entering right into the thick middle of conflict and division in relationships within the church that are caused by the very sins that Paul lists here in verse 20. It has always been this way. One of the things that, that I hear so often among, among my fellow saints is this lamentation that the church has just become so wretched. I have news for you, beloved. The church has always been miserable when it comes to the performance of Christians. Please hear me out for a second. We are just sinners redeemed by grace and we're still fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil every single day of our lives. We live in the battlefield. The church has not been better at some point in the past than it is now. And you know what's so marvelous is that God has still advanced the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ through the miserable likes of people just like us in every generation of the church. Because greater is He who is in us than he who is in the world. Don't ever forget that. The, the power of the church on earth, yes, we are accountable. Absolutely, we are accountable to live lives that are, that are given over to Christ, that are yielded to Christ. And yes, our usefulness to God is, is marvelously increased and enhanced when we're willing vessels. And what's, great, what's most greatly enhanced is our joy in being used. But God is going to do what God has purposed to do. And He's a great and perfect shepherd. And He uses even people like us to transform the world, to, to draw men and women and children out of the darkness into the eternal light of Christ one soul at a time. That's how He changes the world. One soul at a time. And He uses people like us to do it. 
If you love the bride of Christ as you have been loved by Christ, you will not have the option to sit on the sidelines hoping that someone else is going to confront unrepentant sin that is brought to your attention within the local church. You're it. Paul's faithful example here leaves no wiggle room. What this means is that when God exposes to your view any pattern of unrepentant sin or any move toward divisiveness in His body, you don't get to sit idly by and wait for someone else to take action. You're it. That does not mean in any way that you're alone in that sobering task. But it does mean you don't get to just sit back and wait for someone else to, to, to do what needs to be done. When you do take action, you can expect someone to accuse you of meddling, of not minding your own business. But beloved, the building up and the loving protection of the household of God, the flock of Jesus Christ, is every believer's business. This is Ephesians 4, verses 14 to 16. It's a pretty well-known passage. We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being, listen, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building of, of itself in love. How many members of the body are exempt from that assignment? None. As we wrap up this morning, I want to talk just a bit more about what I call Christianity in the trenches. I'm going to read you a two-sentence statement from Kent Hughes that beautifully captures what I believe is the most profoundly important lesson of this passage. And I'm going to read it twice. Please listen. Love the church. Serve her. Spend and be spent. And your heart will know an index of fears unknown to the uncommitted heart. But you will also know joys that are unknown to the self-serving. Once again, love the church, serve her, spend and be spent. And your heart will know an index of fears unknown to the uncommitted heart. But you will also know joys that are unknown to the self-serving. What I pray we will all carry with us from this powerful passage is that being a lover of Christ's church is a very costly proposition if you accept the assignment, you need to do so knowing that you are called to embrace a way of life that will look a whole lot like the last three years of Jesus' earthly life and a whole lot like the last few decades of Paul's earthly life. If you embrace God's assignment for His children to love His children as they have been loved by Christ, you need, to, you need to know it is a call to live in the trenches with other believers. To actually be alongside others in the midst of their most emotion-laden conflicts. 
their most painful hurts, their most threatening fears, their greatest suffering, and their greatest joys. If you do so, if you accept that assignment, it will not make for a life of bliss and comfort. It will not make for a life of uninterrupted calm and serenity. I I talk often of the myth of of Christian serenity. You, You don't get that if you read Paul. It certainly will not make your life predictable. It certainly will not make your life predictable. It's much harder to exercise than it is to let your body waste away, but there's no contest when it comes to which is better for you and for the people who love you. It is much harder to actually be alongside a brother or sister in Christ as they work through a painful crisis or conflict or illness than it is to tell yourself that there has to be somebody more qualified than you to stand in that kind of suffering. It's much harder to humbly and lovingly confront sin in the household of God than it is to let someone else do the confronting. But beloved, the everlasting usefulness and the very great joy that God has prepared for you and me this side of glory is not found in the bleachers. It is only found on the field. Dear Father, we pray that You would not let us take this lightly or forget it quickly. We pray that You would renew our agreement with You about the nature of Your assignment, Your calling, and Your provision day by day, every day, Father. That we would get up in the morning praising You for the life of miraculous usefulness to which You have called us. Knowing at every turn, Lord, that You have enabled that which You have required and You have filled us up to overflowing. You have lavished upon us the unfathomable riches of Christ all the time. And we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We lack nothing. We lack nothing. Father, use us. Spend us. And make us joyful to be spent. For the sake of Jesus and His redeemed, we pray it in His precious name. Amen.